This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. My brand new book, Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth, is now available. So much more than a book, this is a guide that allows me to hold your hand through your birth preparation journey. With over a decade of experience and knowledge packed in to ensure you really are empowered in the way you deserve to achieve a positive birth, regardless of the twists and turns that crop up. Make sure that you get your hands on Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth Book now and are empowered to have the birth experience that you deserve. To those of you who are season one listeners, welcome back. And to those of you who are new to my podcast, welcome to season two of the Pregnancy Wellness Podcast, hosted by me, Pip. I'm a practicing midwife and enthusiast of all things women's wellness especially when it comes to pregnancy and motherhood. Do you find yourself with lots of pregnancy questions unanswered? Do you feel that extra midwifery support would be useful to you? Do you fully understand how to enhance your pregnancy wellness? You are in good hands. This podcast is for you. Alongside this, I have also been busy creating a 12-month pregnancy journey support group and course to provide you with a whole package of expert wellness and pregnancy information to guide you every step of the way, leaving no stone unturned from trimester one right through to trimester four. And I'm now enrolling expectant mums in their first trimester. Spaces will be limited. So if you think this sounds like you, get in touch through my social media or at midwifepip.com. Over the upcoming 15 episodes, I'm excited to be chatting with expert guests and real women on this season to bring you honest, evidence-based information and top tips to navigating your pregnancy wellness journey. I hope these episodes leave you feeling positive and empowered. And don't forget, for more support and birth preparation, to check out my website, midwifepip.com for your free birth preference plan download. I hope that you are sat comfortably and ready for the midwife chats and knowledge bombs to commence. If there is one thing that seems to occupy an expectant mum's mind in the preparation for birth, it has to be perineal and vaginal tearing. And for good reason, the natural stretching that takes place during birth can result in some degree of tearing for around 85% of women who have a vaginal birth. So arming ourselves with the correct information, considering measures that may help prevent tearing and how to care for the area in the postpartum are super important. I am delighted to be joined by the perfect guest, Dr. Brooke Vandermollen, to help me bust the common myths and to ensure you are informed with accurate, evidence-based information to help switch you from a mindset of feeling scared to feeling prepared for the birth of your little one. 
Dr. Brooke is a practicing obstetrics and gynecology registrar doctor and a mother of two babies under three. She's presented her research into high-risk pregnancy at major international conferences and published in prominent medical journals. Brooke is experienced at dealing with all aspects of women's health and pregnancy, including assessing patients with a range of gynecological concerns and performing and assisting in surgical procedures. Brooke has also created her educational platform, the OBGYN Mum, by which she shares insights and tips around pregnancy, fertility, menopause, and more through her social media and blog posts. All of these you can find linked in the episode description. She aims to empower women to feel in control of their health throughout their lives by imparting evidence-based knowledge in a relatable way and myth-busting common taboo subjects. So welcome Brooke and thank you so much for taking the time to join us in more lockdown recording on, on the podcast today. No problem, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, this is a topic I, I do love to talk about. I'm with you because I don't know about you but I get so many questions, especially via my kind of Instagram inbox for women about this subject and it's one that kind of I feel like there's a lot of scaremongering out there yeah exactly I think I guess you know if you're in your mind you you would really like to have a vaginal birth the main downside anyone can think of is kind of tearing and that's what people definitely worry about and so there isn't a huge amount you can do and this does get thrown around you know um the idea of perineal massage and things like that to reduce the risk of tearing and so I think there's a lot of confusion no one can really give you often the right technique and things like that so yeah I get asked loads and loads about this as well I'm so pleased that we're going to be able to bust all those myths today so pleased no one need do another desperate google search about this subject they can just listen to you instead (laughs) (laughs) so Brooke before we get started I just wonder what kind of inspired you or interested you in a career in obstetrics over all the other specialities you could have gone into Uh, Yeah, well, I guess it started probably when I was in medical school. It it wasn't really, obviously, it wasn't really something that I was aware of really as a specialty Um, beforehand. I did my, when I did one of my placements as all medical students kind of rotate through the different specialties, I came across Ops and Guiley. And I just loved, um, it's a very wide speciality. Uh, We cover everything to do with women's health. So kind of from childhood, almost when you start your periods, contraception um, to the years that you're trying to get pregnant and fertility. Uh, and then of course pregnancy menopause and kind of everything in between so I loved the fact that I get to combine all of those things um, and see people kind of all the way through their lives Uh, yeah it's it's just a really nice specialty because it involves surgery Um, we also kind of offer medical treatments I never have two of the same days. So one day I could be covering the labor ward uh, and just dealing with emergencies and, you know, helping do cesarean sections and instrumental births and things like that. Another day I could be, you know, in the early pregnancy clinic or I could be uh, in, you know, a gynecology clinic, just managing people with prolapse or something completely different. So yeah, that's what I liked about it. And then uh, when I started working in it um, as a medical student, I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe the hours aren't for me maybe um this is going to be a tough um path in life but 
after I finished the prison, I just couldn't stop thinking about it really. Um, so I, I came back and I did, did some extra work and research and things like that in the area. And I just found it so fascinating. So yeah, I've kind of ended up here. Uh, but interestingly, I think I gained more of a passion for Obs and Gynae once I started my Instagram account as well and kind of started blogging in that sense, because um, I guess doing this uh, brings me in touch with a lot of the people um, who maybe don't come to the doctor with certain questions like a worry about tearing it often isn't something that really comes to us as doctors it might be mentioned to the midwife or might, maybe someone just doesn't say anything about it all through um, their life so it was only really when I was pregnant myself and I was googling a lot of these things that I was like oh you know these are real things that people need to know about and really we don't get enough information about a lot of this stuff so so yeah it kind of gave me even more of a passion for women's health since since doing this as well. Oh, I love that, Brooke, and I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. So we're all very grateful for the information that you're putting out on um, your Instagram and through your blog, because it's amazing. And I guess we're all really grateful as well that you've gone into the career of obstetrics and gynaecology, because I think it's quite often considered one of the more challenging um, of, of the specialities. But I mean, so rewarding. So thank you for, for everything you're doing to help support women's health. We're all very, very grateful. So one of the things that we hear all of the time is that around 85, sometimes up to 90% of women sustain some degree of perineal trauma. What does that mean, Brooke? Because as a woman, when you hear that, that sounds absolutely terrifying, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, yes, it does sound really scary, uh, but I think that the most important thing to remember is we've got lots of different types of tears. We grade them from grade one to grade four, depending on how severe they are. Grade one being really like a graze, like when you cut your knee. Um, and interestingly, the, the vagina um, and the perineal area, much like your mouth, because they're so vascular, they're, they're, they're given a lot of blood supply and they heal generally very quickly from any kind of minor wounds. Like if you had a cut inside your mouth, probably heals a lot quicker than it would on your knee. Um, and yeah, the same is true in the vagina. So things like a, a little graze, um, little, little cuts that you might sustain, which we would call like a grade one tear, you barely would even notice. So that is included in that stat of 90%. Um, and, and most people, most of those tears would probably grade, be grade one or grade two. Grade two would be very slightly deeper and we might insert a few stitches in, in that. But again, you know, no lasting effect, no, no, you, you may not even be aware that it's happened, especially if you've got an epidural, and really nothing to worry about at all. Grade three and four tears are um, the more severe types of tears. And those are the ones that I think it's important to be aware of. Uh, and that's when we say we want to try to avoid tearing, you can't avoid all tearing because a lot some of it is just going to be inevitable. Some of it is just going to be the way that your skin is, the way that your muscles are. Um, and, and it's completely acceptable to have, you know, grade one or grade two tear. But grade three and four involve the anus. Um, and that can have longer term implications um, if you tear in that direction. And you involve kind of the anal sphincter, which is what um, kind of keeps your rectum closed, keeps your poo where it should be. Uh, and so if that is torn and isn't repaired properly, it can lead to problems later on, for example, like leaking um, farts or when you when you aren't aware of it or um, leaking stool as well. So those problems are very, very rare as a kind of complication of birth. But that is what I think it, we, we worry about when it comes to tearing, whereas grade one, grade two, really not a problem. And that's why I so see, yes, 90% of women may have some form of tear, but the vast, vast majority will be grade one or grade two. Yeah, that's a really great point, isn't it? And actually, when we talk about such high statistics, I 
think rather than feeling sort of scared or off put by that, it's really important that we do talk about it. Otherwise, it becomes one of those massive women's health taboos. And we all know there's so many out there that we don't talk about. So then when it happens to you, you feel like you're the only one when actually you can pretty much guarantee most of your friends and family have been in the exact same boat. But we just don't talk about it so we don't know. So it's important that we use that statistic, not to make people feel scared, but actually to make them realise that this is a common thing. We need to talk about it so that then women don't feel alone or isolated if they sustain some kind of trauma following birth. And also sometimes that actually the flip side happens and the only stories you hear are people that have had terrible, you know, third and fourth degree um, tears and, you know, have problems with incontinence. And actually, if you haven't really heard any stories of people that had a tear and were fine, you'll probably think, well, if I have a vaginal birth, this is going to happen to me and it's going to be the end of the world. And like you said, I think it's just about normalizing it. This is part of the process of birth. It will probably happen to everybody that has a baby, whether it's on your first baby or not. And it's really not anything to worry about uh, and you won't automatically mean you're going to get one of those more more severe ends of the kind of spectrum and if you do again we can repair it and there's a lot we can do to help you so try not to read too much into the scare stories I would say definitely definitely and that goes with all things childbirth doesn't it oh my goodness the stories that are out there (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) it's a wonder we're still doing it and the other thing Brooke that crops up that I think is quite useful for women to understand is what an episiotomy is because that's another thing that sometimes fills people with horror (laughs) yes absolutely um so an episiotomy is when uh the midwife or the doctor that is delivering your baby makes deliberately makes a cut or makes an incision in your perineum uh and that is in this country now given in what we call a mediolateral direction so we the idea is to avoid you tearing vertically downwards. So from where the entrance to your vagina is towards the anus, because we want to avoid you tearing uh, and affecting the kind of the the muscles and the the sphincters of the anus. So we try to divert any tears that may occur by making a cut out to the side. So we kind of do it down and out. Um, If you kind of imagined a clock, it's like a seven o'clock direction. Now, the the reasons, there are mainly two reasons we do an episiotomy. Um, The first reason is if we um, really need your baby to be delivered quickly. And so in an ideal situation, you know, people think of me as an obstetrician, all I want to do is intervene. That's not true. In an ideal, I really want, you know, um, kind of no intervention, vaginal birth, and that we want to kind of watch and be available on hand, but not necessarily have to get involved in deliveries. Um, So uh, in an ideal situation, you'll be pushing because you'll be fully dilated, pushing your baby out. Baby will be descending nicely to the perineum. And we take that part quite slowly. As the baby's head is crowning and it's stretching the perineum, we like to give it plenty of time for those tissues to be stretched by the baby's head as it comes through, which uh, also again reduces the risk of tearing Um, and we kind of also assist with some gentle perineal massage as the baby's head comes out um, and applying some gentle pressure basically to reduce the risk of it um, tearing by coming through very quickly however if we're monitoring your baby and your baby's heart rate is dropping and we are worried about your baby and we need this process to happen quickly um, what we can do um, and this is only at the point when baby's crowning anyway so it can't be done earlier on but if if baby is about to be born and we just are worried we can make that incision and often that expedites the delivery makes that little part of that final bit of the delivery happen a bit quicker Um, so that that's a situation where it where it can be helpful another situation where 
where it can be helpful um, is when we're trying to reduce the risk of you having a third or a fourth degree tear. So again, it is not to reduce the risk of you having any form of tear because we cannot prevent that. And quite, you know, often you may have an episiotomy and have a second degree tear somewhere else, which is absolutely fine. But the thing we're trying to avoid is having a third or a fourth degree tear. Um, and if when we are, um, you know, examining you, when we're helping to deliver your baby um, and we feel that there's not really much space there, um, the tissues, the tissues are quite um, fixed in position. They're not really stretching as they should. We would be worried that as the baby's head comes through, it will just all tear rather than stretch. And so, again, as a preventative measure, we can put in an episiotomy to reduce the risk of those of those tears happening. Um, and another situation where we might do it to reduce the risk of tears happening would be if you were having an instrumental delivery. So if we are doing a foot, you know, recommending you to have a forceps birth um, or a von Tuss, so a suction cup, those can, those instruments can slightly increase the risk of you having those more um, severe forms of tears. So we almost always give you an episiotomy um, as well to help to reduce those risks. So I think it's important to be aware that an episiotomy is a tool we have and it serves a purpose um, and it is there for, for good reason. But we are also, you know, as medicine is evolving, we are understanding things better. And we are moving away from, I think what happened probably a few years ago was there became a culture of everyone kind of jumping into doing episiotomy in every situation and I think midwives used to joke about the obstetricians kind of standing at the door holding a pair of scissors because that was what we would do every time we come in the room and I think we are moving away we the evidence is starting to show that there isn't a benefit in doing an episiotomy in everybody because there are situations it's, it's not going to even change the outcome and some people we'll still get a third or a fourth degree tear anyway. So it, doing an episiotomy on everybody is not beneficial. But as I mentioned before, if you do an episiotomy in a situation where you need to, for one of those reasons mentioned, mainly to expedite delivery, or because there is, there is a particular reason in that situation that person is more likely to tear, then it serves a good purpose. Nothing is obligatory. You are an active participant in your birth. And the one thing I would really encourage anyone that's listening is, if something is being recommended to you, feel empowered, ask questions, say why, please can you tell me about why you think you need to do that? What options do I have? Because, you know, again, we're moving away from this patriarchal medicine where the doctor recommends and you should just take it. However, of course, I would say that most likely if your midwife or, or doctor is recommending something, it is probably for a good reason. But explore those reasons so that you feel comfortable, you feel positive, you feel like you are an active participant in the process rather than kind of passively just um, having things done to you, because that can leave you with that feeling of being traumatized. Um, so, yeah, I and if you have questions about episiotomy, Ideally, earlier in the birth is probably a good time to bring that up if you've got strong feelings towards it, because at that moment, the baby's crowning is not a good time to really stop and have that discussion if possible. Yeah, that's such a good point. And like you say, asking those questions, no one's ever going to mind you asking those questions. That's the only way that you can really give informed consent and no one's going to do an episiotomy without your informed consent. So that's really important. And yeah, I totally echo what you said, Brooke, but, but at that last minute when the baby's head is crowning and, and there's perhaps concerns, we haven't got sort of 10, 15 minutes to go through all of the pros and cons and ins and outs and recovery and repair and all that kind of stuff. At the beginning of your labour, we've potentially got hours to talk about that. So ask those questions early on if it's something that is really kind of playing on your mind in, in labour and birth. Also, um, just to touch on Brooke, is that when it comes to episiotomies, 
um, women are given um, some analgesia first, aren't they? So it's not done kind of with full sensation as we might predict if we're, we're sat here now, that would obviously be barbaric, but actually yes. at the time the situation's different. Yes, absolutely. So um, it, it can be given in, um, in different locations. So an episiotomy can even be given if you're having a home birth, if you're having a birth in a birth center or on a labor ward. As I say, it doesn't have to be done by doctors. It can be done by midwives. Um, if you happen to be on a labor ward, and you have an epidural in place, you'll already be, be numb from the top of your bump all the way down to your toes, or you'll, you'll have a much reduced sensation. So that is usually very good analgesia. We can go straight in. If we need to do an episiotomy, you will not feel it. But of course, we would usually still test first, maybe just prick the area, say, can you feel me touching you there? And if you can't, then we can go ahead and do the episiotomy. If not, we can give you a top up of your epidural. So yes, that's an easy way. If you've got that in place, no problem. In other situations, we have other forms of pain relief we can give you. Generally, it'll be one of two, either um, what's called a pudendal nerve block. So that is usually done by obstetricians. I think, I don't think midwives. Yeah, I don't know any midwives that do to yeah. blocks, I think. <laughs> um, it's some, but not, not yeah. my friend, certainly. Exactly, it's uh, kind of, again, it's not a needle you see, but it's a, 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 large, a longer needle, which can go a little bit higher up to give you a good nerve block of the area to block a nerve called the pudendal nerve um, to um, make sure that you feel numb down below. Or we can give you a, a, just a local anaesthetic, same as like you have when you go to the dentist. And that's probably the commonest type of um, pain relief that is given um, to assist with an epidural. Uh, and we would just inject straight into the tissue where we're about to cut, leave it for a couple of minutes um, if we can, and then, and then cut. And again, you'll be numb, so you wouldn't feel that. Brilliant. So that's another thing that women don't need to worry about. So if they are offered or recommended an episiotomy, it's not something they're going to feel, which I think is one of the big, big fear things out there. So that's really reassuring to hear, Brooke. Thank you. Now, one of the things I find in my practice, I don't know if you're the same, is that following the birth of the baby, one of the first questions um, women tend to ask me is, did I tear? And the reason I think it's important we mention this is because it shows when we're sat here, like you and I are now, the idea of a baby coming out of a vagina and tearing those tissues, it sounds awful, right? And women are really scared about feeling that happen and feeling that sensation. But actually, when your baby's head is crowning and sat on those perineal tissues, all of your nerves are stretched because you are literally about to meet your little one. And so it's not the sensation that we might imagine. And so when women ask me, did I tear? that tells me that actually women aren't feeling that process happen, which I think can be massively reassuring um, to those that are concerned about this issue. Do you find the same kind of thing? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's two questions you'll get asked. You'll either get asked, did I tear or what did I have? If no one's thought yeah. to tell parents if it was a girl or a boy or show them. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it definitely is, um, I think, something that people, uh, can't don't feel that sensation um, and they may be concerned afterwards but honestly the, the other question I often get asked is how many stitches are you putting in or how many stitches do you put in when you kind yeah. of sew up and they're kind of questions that I would just be just say you know enjoy your skin to skin time with your baby have a nice cuddle midwife can even if you feel comfortable help you to have your first feed let us take care of down below we'll stitch it up for you and you don't really need to worry or be preoccupied by those things because um, you really won't be aware of it and it will have very little bearing um later on you know someone who who has a vaginal birth that doesn't have any tears i can tell you will still feel sore the next day or for a couple of days and obviously someone that's had a first or a second degree tear the same they will feel they will feel the same thing 
definitely it's all that bruising that's gone on as well isn't it it's a massive trauma to your tissues whether there's been any any tearing or not definitely definitely so how do you think that's helped to reassure some mums the other thing i wanted to touch on we talked a bit about the options for analgesia for an episiotomy and they're kind of identical aren't they to the repair so again the repair will be done without you feeling um pain but there are some sensations that women tend to feel isn't there when whilst we're doing a repair it's not kind of sensation free necessarily yeah the same thing as kind of i would explain if someone was to have a cesarean section is that you um the injections that we give will block the pain fibers but they don't block all of your nerve fibers so specifically they don't really block the nerves for touch so you will feel someone touching you you will you may be aware of something happening down below i mean again you liken it to dental treatment because anyone that's had dental treatment you know that feeling of like someone is stretching at your mouth you can kind of feel that there's instruments in your mouth but if you someone said which tooth were they operating on you may have absolutely no idea because you lose that kind of awareness of exactly where they are so you kind of lose that sensation uh, of being able to locate something and you obviously lose the pain so if you were to have a cesarean section and you had an epidural in place or a spinal anesthetic you could feel us um, touching you and you'll feel that something's going on in your belly some people say it feels like someone's doing the washing up in their tummy because we're kind of rummaging around but it doesn't feel like um painful or anything like that Amazing. That's really good to know as well. So anyone that's worried about pain when it comes to repair of a tear doesn't need to worry about that either because we've got that covered. Now, are all types of tears repaired, Brooke? And how might that happen? What should women expect from that process? Yeah, so as I say, uh, grade one tears are not repaired. Uh, they would tend to be like little grazes. Um, they can be kind of anywhere really in that um, perineal area, uh, but they tend to not be repaired unless they are bleeding. That's the only thing. Um, and sometimes you can have a very superficial tear, which really would cause absolutely no long-term harm, but it involves a blood vessel. So we might put one stitch in to stop that from oozing uh, but otherwise yeah second third and fourth degree tears would all be repaired um, and episiotomies obviously um, a, a kind of a second degree tear is similar to an episiotomy they kind of un fall under the same category uh, those would be repaired usually in the room where you've given birth you don't have to go anywhere special you don't have to have any um, anything uh, like you say the analgesia the the anaesthetic that you'll have had will probably be enough even for the repair. If you have a third or a fourth degree tear, it's really, really important that a, we identify it. So if someone tell, tells you that you've got a third degree tear, you should actually, in a way, be grateful they're telling you that there and then, because that is a great thing to pick up at the time of birth. Going back and trying to repair a third degree tear that was misdiagnosed um, may mean that that causes problems later on because some scar tissue and things will start to form and it won't be possible to get as good a repair as doing it the first time around. So actually, if someone says, I'm afraid you've got a third degree tear, it's actually good news that they've identified it. Um, and then what the next thing that they need to do is take you around to the operating theatre. Um, and the reason for that is we need to make sure that, that the first time that we repair that tear, it's done properly and it's done right. Um, and that, again, to avoid, because the chances are, if you get a good repair after a third degree tear, you won't have any um, long-term problems at all. It won't affect any future births or, you, you know, it's just like having a second degree tear really but it needs to be done properly the first time, which is why we move you around to the theatre, we make sure you have a really good anaesthetic on board. So um, although 
like a local anesthetic would probably be okay in the sense that you probably wouldn't feel it it might start to wear off um, and it might kind of you feeling pain would get in the way also of getting good visualization of the of the area so we would insert we would insert usually a spinal anesthetic if you don't have an epidural on board so you get a really good anesthetic um so again you can relax in the operating theater even close your eyes you'll be exhausted after the birth and let us take care down below because you won't be feeling it and that's when we would repair that with good lighting, with your legs up in a um, in the proper position so that we get a good visualization of the area, make sure that we identify any fibers that are torn, for example, in the anal sphincters or in the, the layers um, of that kind of area, make sure everything is repaired at that time. That process would probably take, can take about an hour, I would probably say, um, which is a, which is kind of a downside of that is, of, is you're separated from your baby for an hour pretty soon after you've given birth. And uh, that's probably the worst part for most people, but you will be reunited very quickly. And although we fully encourage everybody to have the golden hour, spend time skin to skin as soon as possible after the birth of your baby equally, Sometimes emergencies happen and we don't want to leave, for example, a third or a fourth degree tear, even for a few hours for you to have longer cuddles before we repair it. Because the problem is, A, you might be bleeding and B, that tissue will start to swell, which again can impact on the repair. So it is important to get it done as soon as possible after it's been identified and get it done properly. And then you won't have any problems. Amazing. That's really good advice. So if anyone is experiencing that, at least they've got a heads up. And I don't know about you, Brooke, but actually most of the women that I've supported who have gone for a repair of a third or fourth degree tear following their birth, they actually have a good nap. And then by the time they're reunited with their baby and they're ready for their tea and toast and all of those wonderful skin to skin cuddles, they feel a little bit invigorated because everyone is exhausted after birth. And just having that little hour's power nap can be amazing. So there are pros and cons, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. So hopefully we have gone some way to help reassure women about what perineal tearing is, the kind of statistics around that and what to expect should you um, sustain some tearing or require an episiotomy. Now there is some evidence that's come out about some of the things that we might be able to do that may help reduce the risk or the severity, so specifically those third and fourth degrees that we said we really, really want to minimise. It is important that we remember that, like we've kind of said already, Brooke, if there was one thing we could do that stopped perineal tearing, we wouldn't be here chatting about it today, like it's just not that simple. There are so many factors. But some of these things have no real risk associated. So they're kind of worth a go, I suppose. And um, what are some of the things that we could try doing, Brooke, if we wanted to try and reduce these risks? Um, yeah, so the main thing is kind of antenatally that you can do is perineal massage. That's the best thing. A lot of people haven't heard about that. A lot of people actually haven't even heard of their perineum before they get pregnant um, because they, uh, yeah, they might not be aware of where the area is. So the first thing I would encourage you to do is take a mirror uh, and have a look down below, understand what you're looking at. And you know, if you're pregnant, it's probably been a while since you maybe have seen what that looks like down below. So take a mirror, try and identify what we're talking about here. Um, and then yeah, get comfortable and you can start practicing perineal massage. I would advise from around 35, 36 weeks pregnant. You don't really wanna do it much before that because firstly, it's unlikely to have any extra benefit if you start earlier than that and the second thing is now when you're doing perineal massage you're stretching the area of the perineum you shouldn't be anywhere close to your cervix 
but it's possible, especially when you start, that you may um, kind of accidentally put your fingers in too far and stimulate your cervix. And if you stimulate your cervix, that can start to trigger some uterine contractions, which you wouldn't necessarily want if you were kind of preterm even before 35, 36 weeks. Again, it's not likely to stimulate preterm labor, but um, it's just something to be aware of. So 35, 36 weeks, something around that time to start perineal massage for about kind of 10 minutes a day, I would say around three times a week. You don't really need to do it more than that. Uh, and what you're trying to do is use a bit of lubricant and gen gently stretch the area, stretch the opening where the baby's head is going to come out of. Uh, and that way you can kind of encourage the stretch, the, the natural elasticity of those tissues so that when the baby's head then comes through it, they already have a bit of give, they already have a bit of stretch um, and so that they, they can give rather than tearing. Um, I have got, um, I think you mentioned it's a blog post on this with a step-by-step -step kind of how-to on my page. Amazing, amazing. I'll link that then in the bio as well so people can go and look at it because, and also that will show women where their perineum is. So if they're not sure, it is that area between the vaginal opening and your back passage. It's kind of like a, almost like a U-shaped band, I suppose, of muscle. And that's like the area. It's a shame that this isn't a video, Brooke, where we could like show it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's actually on my to-do list. I need to make it like a YouTube video of this yeah. uh, because yeah, it is probably one of the things I get asked about the most, and I just find myself making funny hand movements in the air. So yeah, <laughs> oh, so, yeah perineal massage—a great thing to try and do. As we said, we can't guarantee that if you do your perineal massage religiously every single week from thirty-five weeks that you won't sustain any perineal trauma. That's not what we're saying. But there is some evidence to support it reducing the severity and actually improving the healing afterwards as well, which is a win. And, and some there was some evidence last year, Brooke, as well, wasn't there, that showed that it could reduce the length of the pushing stage of labour and possibly reduce the need for an episiotomy as well. So lots of potential benefits to be reaped from it. And if nothing else, it gets us used to our bodies. Yeah, exactly. So they say, yeah, it's around a 9% reduction in the likelihood of either tearing or having an episiotomy. So, you know, that's that's worth uh, worth taking. I think most people would say, like, if I could, you know, a 9%, 9% less likely. And I think even of the tears that people do sustain, they are less likely to fall into that severe category. So I think that is a win. That is what we want, isn't it? That is what we want. Now, one of the couple of things that I really promote as a midwife, and I'm sure that you do as well as an obstetrician, is the benefit of being in these up, what I call UFO positions. So upright, forward, and open positions for birth. And they've been shown as well, I mean, that they might help reduce the severity potentially of some of these perineal tears. Yes, absolutely. Um, the NICE guidelines for um, for labour do recommend that you stay um, kind of in a more upright position. Weirdly, unless you have an epidural and then it encourages you to be lying down on your back. I'm not entirely sure why that is, but I think it's to do with the progress of labour and saying that actually if you've got an epidural and you lie flat, then you have a better progress of your labour. But generally, um, you should be kind of upright um, and mobile as much as possible. And so I think if you haven't got an epidural, or even if you're planning to get an epidural later on in your labour, in the early part, really trying to stay up um, if there's if you've got a birthing ball at home or even um, in the hospital or in the birth center where you are, get on that birthing ball. Um, you know, myself, even in my both of my labors, I think I was bouncing on the birthing ball 
right up until the end. Um, with my son, I had an epidural and I was still bouncing on a birthing ball um, till I was about nine centimeters. So yeah, I think it's staying, using gravity is gonna be really helpful um, and to encourage that, that labor to, to progress, to make sure there's good blood flow down there so that you can, um, like you say, reduce the risk of tearing as well. Definitely, there's so many benefits for being upright in labor. I'm a massive fan for women with epidurals using those peanut balls. So they're like giant balls yeah. that make like a peanut and wedging those between your legs is really great for helping to keep the, the pelvis open as well. And then one of the other things that can be really helpful is the use of a warm compress so at the point when baby's head's crowning. Is that something you see used much, Brooke, in your practice? Yes, and it's something that I'll often do if I walk in a room and sometimes we'll get asked to come to a birth, um, maybe because there's a concern about the baby's heart trace towards the end. But often there's not really a concern. It's because as the baby's really low down in the pelvis, the baby's getting getting squeezed a bit on their way out. Um, and just they, all the baby needs is just a little bit of time to, to be delivered. And they won't, you know, there's no real concern with the trace. But So we do sometimes come in the room when there's questions like that. But I stand at the back of the room. But the one thing I'll do is I'll... Um, you know, take some, um, take a towel or some um, paper towels, uh, run them under some warm water and just give that to the midwives because actually, like you say, um, a warm compress on that perineal area at the time again of crowning or ideally a few minutes beforehand just to warm up the tissues um, can help to reduce the risk of pairing. And then the other thing, um, again, I would do is um, supporting the perineum. So it's almost kind of counterintuitive that as the as mum's pushing down and pushing the baby out, we're actually pushing the baby almost back in, uh, but that's to give it some counter traction, to slow the head down, to slow the baby from flying through um, and encourage those tissues to stretch. And also again, gently massaging those tissues um, as the baby's head um, is coming through to encourage the blood flow, stimulate the blood flow to the area, encourage stretching rather than tearing. So we're on your side as well. That's what we're saying. We're on your side. We're going to try to, but, but um, if you could do the perineal massage and natally, we'll do the warm compress in labour and see how we get on. <laughs> now, one of the other myths I just wanted to bust, Brooke, is we hear sometimes that water births will increase your risk of a third or fourth degree tear. But as far as I'm aware, that isn't supported by any kind of robust evidence. Are you aware of anything else? Um, no, I agree. I've seen, I've seen studies in the past that have mm -hmm. suggested that, and I've seen audits in units that I work in that found that yes, women that, were, that delivered in the water did have a slightly higher rate of um, third and fourth degree tears. However, there are lots of reasons for that. And so that may not necessarily be the water itself. The main things to be aware of, if you're gonna give birth in water, uh, it, you're, you're giving birth kind of unassisted, uh, assisted in the sense that your midwife is, is on hand, but they aren't doing those things that we just mentioned. So you cannot do perineal massage as a head is coming out. You're, you're not doing warm compresses, but the tissue is warm because of warm water, but there isn't um, a midwife or a doctor kind of applying counter pressure and slowing the head down. So the head can descend very quickly. And because you're often in quite a nice upright position in the water or you're on all fours, um, it, the head can come out quite quickly in those situations. So there, those might be the reasons 
for the tearing rather than the water itself. Ha I tend to, and I don't know if this would be a popular um, opinion with you, but I do, if people ask me, I would tend to say, I think water is really helpful as a, as a tool for pain relief um, in early labor, even in the kind of later stages of labor, but I would usually encourage you to deliver on land, as we say. So labor in water and deliver on land, I think is a safe way to do it, especially if for any reason you have a higher risk of tearing yourself. Maybe you've had a tear in the past, um, or, or you know you're particularly worried about tearing I would say um just get out of the water before you start pushing and then you can um kind of get onto the bed even you can still be active you can still um you know be moving around be on all fours when you're pushing you don't have to be pushing kind of lying on your back but maybe that's a, that's a, a way of making sure that your midwife is available on hand to help with those other things that can reduce the risk of tearing yeah it's another conversation when we can have for sure isn't it I on the um on the flip side, Brooke. So I've always I don't I'm very like whatever. If it feels good to, to have your baby in the water, let's do that. If if you'd rather get out, let's do that. I'm kind of not not a strong preference either way. And um, but one of the things I think I've seen, and this is purely anecdotal. I'm not aware of any evidence. This is purely just my opinion from what I've seen in practice. But but women who labour in water, especially for maybe quite a long time and then get out of the water at the last minute to birth their baby, I feel like I see more than vertebrae tears from that scenario. And just in my quite simple mind, I feel like perhaps that's where the tissues have become quite relaxed in the warm water. And then we get out and quite commonly when you get out of the warm water into a birth room, when we get quite cold, and I wonder whether those tissues then kind of tense up and then all of a sudden we push a baby through them and perhaps that's why but that's purely anecdotal but that's something that I have I feel like I've seen a few times recently and I wonder whether there's anything in it or I think yeah that definitely does make sense uh I think as, as obstetricians we don't see a huge number of people kind of delivering um, people laboring in water because there tends to maybe be one if you're lucky one birthing pool available on the labor ward but more often than not we actually see the people after they've given birth because they've given birth at home or in a birth center sustained a third degree tear and then transferred to us so we're often not involved in the delivery if they are delivering kind of in water so I'm not sure uh exactly in that situation but I I would say yes it, it kind of makes sense um, to me. And like you say, I think it, it's all about having these conversations and seeing what you're comfortable with, what you prefer. It's certainly not to say that everyone that's gonna give birth and water is gonna have a third or fourth degree to 10. I, I don't think we mean to put anybody off, but also I think sometimes water gets touted as this kind of like, this aspirational birth and having a water birth is having an intervention free birth and having a calm birth and that's the perfect birth. But water doesn't necessarily work for everyone. <laughs> I mean, I know myself and I kind of was quite happy to have that type of birth. And I, in early labor, got into a bath when I was having contractions and I was like, okay, great. So now I'm in pain and I'm hot and I'm wet and I don't know why I'm in a bath. And it, it just didn't work for me as a sensation. So yes, in theory, it might sound great to labor in water or to deliver in water. And if that's what you want, go for it. But also don't worry if, if it doesn't feel right or you're put off for another reason. You can still have an amazing active birth which can be positive in so many other ways without it involving water. Oh absolutely I totally agree and it's really important that we don't just plan for this one type of birth and we're kind of getting off track here but I know this like we're both really passionate about <laughs> and actually 
recognizing that if you don't have a hypnobirth without any intervention in a pool with all your candles, then you failed. And that's one of the things I can't bear. We have to plan for all eventualities and just empower ourselves with information about it all because actually all birth can be really empowering. The amount of women I've met that have had really fast emergency cesarean section births, but at the end have been like, wow, I feel like superwoman because I made informed choices throughout all of that because I knew what to expect and I educated myself. And that's where it's so important, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I feel that the thing that is going to, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'll i meet somebody who had, you know, a uh, complex th- forceps delivery and third degree tear and, you know, all, you know, all the other eventualities that might have happened, but who could say like, yes, I had a great birth experience. And then I can meet somebody who had a completely normal vaginal, uh, uncomplicated vaginal delivery with an episiotomy that will feel deeply traumatized. And there is no such thing. You can't say to that person who felt traumatized, well, what, what do you mean you felt traumatized? And, you know, I've had people come in next time around requesting a cesarean section because they feel traumatized but then you go into their story and you're like "Mm, really but you can't judge anybody because everyone's personal experience of trauma is different and maybe also shaped by other things that have happened in their life but to me if you if you're pregnant right now and you are thinking ahead I think the most important thing you can do to avoid that feeling of trauma later on is not set yourself up for failure not set yourself up so that you're going to feel disappointed you set yourself up so that like you say you're fully informed you are aware of what's available to you you have all the tools in your toolkit you can ask all the right questions you know you may have a plan a or b and a c or you might have no plan don't have a plan that's fine too and you're just open you're making the right choices for your baby and at the end of the day you have your baby you know hopefully in your arms safely delivered and really not setting yourself up to focus obsessively on one type of birth or, you know, if you do tear, like it, you know, don't, that you won't feel so disappointed or worried afterwards and that you just kind of know, yeah, you've listened to this podcast, you know, it's not that big a deal. It might happen. You'll probably get, get stitched up and you, you're very unlikely to have any long-term implications from it. And you can move forward and feel positive and empowered and not traumatized. Yeah, I can't wait for the day that we no longer talk about birth trauma and actually all women feel like super powerful after birth I really hope that we we get there because it's it's really important so we got a bit off track but that's because that's an area that I know we're both really really passionate about which I love so going back to um perineal trauma so in the postpartum period what can we do to look after a perineal tear and what can we kind of expect from the kind of healing process and, and things to do I suppose yeah, so the first thing, is, kind of as I mentioned before, that your uh, your vagina and the perineum is set up for this. You know, our bodies are kind of made for this in the sense that you'll have a very good blood supply down there. So these tissues do tend to heal very well. So first of all, don't don't worry, it will heal on its own. You don't need to do too much. However, of course, you'll have some likely have some discomfort. So I would encourage you to take your painkillers 
Paracetamol and ibuprofen are usually absolutely sufficient, totally safe in breastfeeding. And I would encourage you to take them regularly, probably for about seven days. Um, so that's a couple of times a day. Whether or not you're feeling pain, still take the painkillers because actually staying mobile and making sure that you're not lying down all the time, you're, you're walking around, that will actually help the healing process. So if you need to take painkillers regularly to make sure that you're kind of mobilizing as normal, because of course, when the pain comes back, you'll probably just want to lie on the sofa and that's not necessarily good for the recovery so take your painkillers regularly mobilize when you can if you are um you know on the sofa or in bed um use maybe get get an inco inco pad or something that you can sit on or even just a towel because you'll probably be um, bleeding as well as we all have um, some bleeding postnatally um so just something you can sit on um and take your underwear off and just sit with your kind of legs apart um just to allow the air to really get to it to um keep it dry that's a, that's a really important part of this kind of healing process is not allowing the, the wounds to get too moist. So if you can, taking your underwear off and letting uh, and just sitting sitting with your legs up. But if you are wearing underwear, wearing a sanitary pad, because as I say, you will be bleeding, um, but making sure you're changing that pad very regularly. Don't let that pad get um, heavily saturated so that you're sitting on moisture. Changing that kind of every hour or two when the bleeding is heavy. Um, and when you have a shower, and that you can um, just dab it dry afterwards. Don't rub it and don't clean the area with any soap. Just some kind of gentle water is enough. Um, and just, yeah, as I say, pat it dry. The first couple of times you do a wee probably will sting. Again, regardless of whether you have a tear or not, actually, it will probably sting. You can take a cup of warm water with you um, and as you're, as you're weeing, kind of pour it on yourself and that can take away a little bit of a sting or even weeing in the shower um, in this situation can, can be a bit more comfortable the first couple of times. Um, avoid constipation if you can, uh, mainly by staying very well hydrated. And if you are constipated, asking for a laxative because what you don't want to then do is kind of be straining on the loo giving yourself plenty of time uh, both to pass urine and to pass poo as well after birth so yeah those are kind of my top tips for healing I personally don't encourage I know there are special creams available and spritzes and all this kind of stuff I kind of think a lot of it is gimmicks I would say unless it's a cream or a, something a medication that your doctor has specifically advised you don't need it the area is designed to heal itself if you give it the chance to I totally echo that point, Brooke. And actually, what, what I always think of, again, this could be my simple mind, but when you want a wound to heal, like you said, you don't want it to be really moist because that's where it's going to breed all that bacteria and increase your risk of infection. So the more that we put spritz and creams and things on, all we're doing is adding to that moisture. So yeah. again, I'm, I'm with you on that. Plain water, no fancy oils or shower gels and, and things like that. Just plain water and keeping it clean and dry. The other thing I've started to see quite a lot is um, those kind of um, mother's nappies. So they've like pants with a pad in, which is absolutely fine if that's what you want to wear as your underwear. However, you need to change those like you would change your pads. And I think commonly I'm starting to see women treat those like their knickers. So they'll put those on for the day rather than changing them. And then like exactly like you just said, you end up with this saturated pad that's really quite unhygienic and you increase that risk of infection. So if you are gonna wear them, they're really expensive and then you need to be changing them every couple of hours. So it might be better just to go for good old big cotton pants and your um, maternity pads instead. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing I want to mention was I always encourage women to wash their hands before they go to the toilet and afterwards. So what you don't want to do is go to the toilet with potential bacteria on your hands and then wipe that wound and then be washing your hands. And making sure you do it pre and post as well to reduce that risk of infection. And I think it's reassuring for women to know that those stitches are generally always dissolvable. So you're yeah. not going to have to go and have them taken out like you might have had to with other surgery, which is quite reassuring to know, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's something that people always ask. Uh, uh, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, even in cesarean sections, we rarely use um, non-absorbable stitches for the skin now, uh, just because uh, absorbable actually gives you a very nice, um, a nice scar either way. And again, reduces the need um, for you to have to kind of go back um, and have stitches taken out. So yeah, um, don't worry, they will for your perineum especially they'll be absorbable they will be which is really which is nice to know isn't it no one wants to have that area fiddled around with again right. <laughs> so one, also, sorry one one other point yeah. on that actually is a lot of people um sometimes what does happen we we stitch up these wounds um for example with an episiotomy we usually do them in kind of two layers uh there'll be a deep layer of stitches and then there'll be a layer that kind of um links in the the skin sometimes they'll even be three uh and what may happen along the way is sometimes the top layer comes apart and that is really nothing to worry about. Um, it can be quite alarming. And I, we often have people coming in via, you know, the, the day unit, for example, um, and they are, you know, really alarmed, really worried that their kind of perineums all come apart. Don't worry is what I would say. We very, very rarely actually restitch. Um, an episiotomy that's come apart like that because that tends to be just the top layer that's opened up and the lower layers are intact and it will just heal itself but it will heal by what we call secondary intention so it heals from the bottom uh, and that way um, it will instead of us sticking that each side together um, the, the sides will be apart but it will heal, heal from the bottom up but it, it will take a bit longer but it will heal because restitching it actually often those stitches because they, the area is all swollen the stitches just tear straight through and we can't get a good result anyway by restitching so we don't tend to do that so don't panic if you see that the stitches have come apart if you want ask your midwife or your doctor to check and have a look and see there's no infection but don't panic and don't worry about it needing to be restitched yeah that's a really good point Brooke I'm pleased you mentioned that the other thing I see quite often is that women who've had an episiotomy and perhaps don't quite understand what that is is they're really concerned that they've got this pain or discomfort on one side of the perineum and not the other. So I think by understanding, like you explained, is that the episiotomy is done at that kind of angle, so that between sort of seven and eight o'clock on a clock face, that that's why. It's because the damage is on one side and not the other. It's not because there's an infection or a problem on one side. That's another one of the things that I, I kind of quite often see. And again, it comes down to having that, that understanding mm. in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I would always encourage, like you said, to to allow your doctor or midwife to check your stitches. But what are some other things that mums can look out for that might be a slight cause for concern or a reason to contact their, their midwife or their doctor? Yeah, so the first thing would be, yeah, if you're worrying that you're developing signs of infection, because these wounds can, can get infected, it's not uncommon. Uh, again, nothing to be 
to worry about because generally a course of some oral antibiotics is enough to take care of it. But what I would be looking for, increasing pain, you know, what we would hope, it will be probably quite uncomfortable or painful for the first couple of days and you'll be taking regular painkillers, which will stay on top of that. After that pain subsides, if it suddenly comes back, that might be a sign that there might be an infection in there, that the wound itself is oozing. Now, granulation tissue which is part of the healing of the tissues can sometimes look a bit a bit yellowish so that doesn't necessarily mean there's pus or there's an infection there because that's actually normal to have this granulation tissue as it's healing but if you are seeing that wound kind of seeping kind of yellowy green stuff coming out and you're not sure that can be something to check with your doctor or midwife and it's another good reason to have a good look down there on a regular basis keep an eye on it um, if you see that the wound is becoming more red and tender around it so you know if you look at the margins of the wound if you start to see it becoming more there be a spreading redness um or, um, or tenderness, again, that might be a sign that there's an infection there. Or if you feel generally unwell, if you start to have a fever, um, um, vomiting or anything like that, just signs that you're generally unwell, again, uh, all good reasons to speak to your midwife or doctor to, to ask them to check it. Definitely, and we'd always rather be asked and then be able to reassure you and there's not a problem than miss something. So it's always good to have that conversation. And one of the things that you just mentioned there, Brooke, about looking at your perineum yourself, Oh my goodness, this is so important, isn't it? But I often meet women that say to me, even when they come back for their second baby, they've not dared look down below since their first birth. And actually, it's really important you do. It's such a critical part of your body. That's your vagina, your perineum. And you're one of the key people that can keep an eye on it and make sure everything's healing as it should. And actually, I don't know about you, but women quite often actually expect it to look like something awful like it's not even part of their body and actually when they look they're like oh is that it and then they're really reassured yeah and again that's why I would say it's a good to have a look before birth so that you really know um what it's what it looks like beforehand and then really quite soon after as soon as you're comfortable to have a look down below look see what it looked like when it was first stitched up um and then you can keep an eye and seeing if the redness is evolving seeing if that kind of tenderness is getting worse and you can kind of as you look touch it or press it try not to touch in the area where it's open but around you can see if that area is particularly tender but the other also a lot of people either don't feel comfortable to look themselves or find it um, find it difficult for one reason or another don't hesitate to ask your midwife to check and I do find sometimes midwives and doctors can be a bit reluctant and people often say this to me like they are surprised at their six-week check for example that the doctor didn't want to take a look at their wound I think often we are guided by you because most of these wounds will be a bit sore, there will be a bit CP and it's not necessarily something we're going to do anything about. So, um, you know, we may not always take a look, but please do not hesitate to ask them to look if you would just prefer them to check the wound. Uh, and if in doubt, get them to check it every time. Your midwife will be visiting you at home for a few days after the birth. Really good to ask her, you know, they, they will say, do you, do, you know, did you have any tears or any stitches down below? And you'll either say yes or no. Um, and then they'll say, would you like me to take a look for you? They'll often offer it. They won't insist on it. They'll offer it. Uh, but I would always say yes, say yes, because you don't necessarily know what's normal. They will have seen hundreds of these perineums. Um, and so don't worry that it's something that they haven't seen before. They will definitely have. And if in doubt, yeah. Uh, get them to check it every time with the when it comes to gp check at six weeks um i'm not sure how useful it is to to get them to check it really i think um by that point it should be very well healed so if you're not having any issues if it's not if it's not seeping it doesn't feel infected 
is there any benefit of them having a look at it ask them to look if you want is all I would say yeah I totally echo everything you just said Brooke. De- but definitely that first kind of 10 days to two weeks definitely accept your midwife's offer of checking it and call if you've got any concerns at all in terms of women checking it themselves I often advise just using like a like a hand mirror and just kind of popping that between your legs have you got any other tips or is that kind oh, of- also your phone um I know that's a bit a, a bit you'd have to take photos of it although actually photos are very helpful because they you can track its process and if you can't remember what it looked like a few days ago if it was worse or better having a photo to look back on is helpful but yeah obviously your, your phone has a flash um and so you can you can put that on um and take a look or just use it as a torch so on selfie mode you can, you can use a phone if you find that easier and don't have a handheld mirror yeah brilliant I bet bet when they invented the selfie uh, camera they didn't <laughs> think that's what we'd be talking about but like you say it works it works so that's perfect I feel like we can't discuss perineal dinotone without touching on pelvic floor exercises and anyone that listens to my podcast knows this is an area that I'm often frustrated that isn't like if we had surgery on any other part of our body, you would automatically have this like physiotherapy plan and referral. And when it comes to perineums, we massively neglect that. But power for exercise is something that we can really do to help ourselves. Um, how do we go about trying to fit those in to the postpartum period, Brooke? How do we start? <laughs> so first thing people often ask is when can I start? You can mm. start way literally as soon as you start getting sensation back because the epidural or whatever is wearing off you can start to do your your pelvic floor exercises it will feel weird it will feel like it's almost not your own perineum it feels all kind of numb and strange and and stretched and weak really weak I that I, I remember it very clearly myself this this strange feeling of like you think you're contracting the muscles but there's nothing there don't panic it, it it's normal to feel like that the muscles have been completely stretched it doesn't mean you're going to be you know incontinent forever some people even are a bit incontinent of urine for a couple of days after giving birth and that's totally normal it just gets better so we would always encourage even if you are leaking some urine at that point you just do your pelvic floor exercises and give it about um about six weeks because it will most of the time improve on its own anyway as that perineal area heals up the muscles kind of tone up again so don't worry but you can encourage that process with your pelvic floor exercises uh and generally you're just you know bringing your attention to that area trying to um you know clench and clench and release on a regular basis a couple of times a day ideally um some people say you know whenever you're breastfeeding because you're doing that lots of times a day if you can remember when you've latched the baby on to then do some of your pelvic floor exercises it's a handy reminder it is hard in the postpartum period to fit everything in but actually it is a time when you're kind of sitting there quite a lot often with not much to do apart from scrolling on your phone because you're feeding your baby um so it's a good time to do your pelvic floor exercises like that and if you need to, if you find that it would be beneficial for you, you can use a pelvic floor device. You don't necessarily need it, but some people struggle with visualizing the pelvic floor, knowing exactly what it is that they're clenching and releasing, um, or just need a bit of motivation and that those kind of devices can be helpful in that situation. Definitely. And just going back to what you said about that sensation post-birth, that's why it's really important to have nailed it in pregnancy or ideally even pre-pregnancy. And in on my first season of the podcast, there's an amazing episode with Claire Bourne, who's a special yeah. pelvic health physio. And she discusses how we should be doing them, when should we be doing them, why pregnancy is so important. So if you haven't listened to that and you've got this far along, please go back and listen and start doing the pelvic floors. Because yeah. <laughs> they are so important. Um, that's our little lecture over. 
<laughs> now, Brooke, anyone that comes on the podcast, I always ask for three top tips. So you haven't escaped, I'm afraid. I wonder if you could share uh, your top three tips to expectant mums who are particularly worried about perineal tearing during their birth. Yes, of course. Well, I guess I've kind of mentioned all these things, but it's a nice little summary. The, the first thing to say is um, consider perineal massage. Uh, look into the technique for it. Um, you can get your partner to do it if you don't feel comfortable to do it yourself. But this is something you can do during pregnancy um, to feel, again, empowered, like you're taking control of the situation. You're doing something to reduce your own risk of tearing. Um, my second tip would be don't worry, because um, the vast, vast majority have you know absolutely no long-term outcome are totally fine um, and nothing to worry about so um so try not to worry about it at all um and i guess the third thing um i would say is uh maybe discuss your your thoughts about tearing or episiotomy with your midwife or doctor early on um so you can uh understand what your options are what what may happen in that situation so you know for me i would always say like antenatal education is the key uh doing an antenatal class or something where you can kind of cover all of these topics again um, in more detail it just helps you to feel positive empowered you know where you're going because per perineal tearing is part of birth that's what that's what we do it's totally normal but knowing what lies ahead um, helps you to feel like you know what what's what's going to happen to you and you're not shocked by anything and make sure your partner watches it too because partners get very worried about this kind of thing yeah that's a really good point isn't it or perhaps just sign page your partner to this chat so that they, they realize what they need to prepare for yeah, absolutely <laughs> oh brooke thank you so much i know you are exceptionally busy so i'm <laughs> really grateful that you have jumped on to chat to us today and to help hopefully reassure some worried expectant mums about their perineums during birth. No problem. Thanks so much again for having me. Thank you, Brooke. Have a lovely day. And you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you found it helpful, then please hit subscribe and leave a review. It really does make a huge difference to the number of women we can reach out to and empower. For daily free information, inspiration, or details on our bespoke antenatal education courses, head over to my social medias at midwife underscore pip and my website midwifepip.com. I would love to hear from expectant mums who have found this episode useful and wish to embrace further support on their wellness journey. Pop your details in the Your Pregnancy Journey tab on my website and I will be back in touch. Thank you and see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>